This podcast is produced and issued by Morningstar Investment Management, LLC, a registered investment advisor and subsidiary of Morningstar, Inc. The content is intended for U.S. audiences only. Individuals featured in this podcast are employed by Morningstar, Inc. and its subsidiaries. This includes, but is not limited to, Morningstar Investment Management, LLC and Morningstar Research Services, LLC. Morningstar Investment Management and Morningstar Research Services are registered with and governed by the U.S. Securities and Exchange Commission. Stay tuned for additional important disclosure information at the end of this episode. Imagine a network news anchor in a Navy suit and perfectly coiffed hair, announcing in his or her usual gravitas, Turning to Wall Street, the Dow Jones Industrial Average plummeted over 600 points today, one of the biggest drops in history. As the video feed cuts to B-roll footage of Wall Street traders with furrowed brows looking very glum, and then a graphic with a big bright red arrow pointing down. Does the news of the Dow dropping hundreds of points make your pulse quicken? Does it shake your confidence in markets? Well, we think this story, which is happening more frequently these days, needs more context. So we're going to talk about why we think investors should dump the Dow in favor of a capitalization-weighted broad market benchmark. And going beyond the Dow, we'll talk a bit about why what you pay attention to matters. Joining me today on the phone to talk about the Dow is John Owens, Senior Equity Portfolio Manager at Morningstar Investment Management. John, thanks for being here. How's the weather in Des Moines today? Hey, Drew. Thanks for having me. It's uh, actually a beautiful summer day in Des Moines. Very good. Very good. And joining me in the studio is Ryan Murphy, Head of Decision Sciences. Ryan, I think you're the most frequent guest on the podcast. So welcome back. Good. Good to be here. So what's wrong with the Dow Jones Industrial Average? It's been around forever, right? Well, Drew, I mean, you're right. The Dow's been around for a very long time, I think since 1896. So I think if you want to discuss the performance of U.S. stocks and the first half of the 20th century, then I think, you know, by all means, go ahead, you know, use the Dow. But after that, I think uh, the S&P 500, the Russell 3000, or even the Morningstar U.S. Market Index are just much better choices as bellwethers for U.S. stocks. And why is that, John? Why do you think the Dow doesn't accurately reflect the the U.S. stock market? Okay, good question, Drew. So I, I have a couple issues here. The first is the Dow's just 30 stocks. So that really pales in comparison to the S&P 500 or the Russell 3000. The, the having you know, 500 and 3000 stocks respectively, correct? Exactly. You know, and also, you know, another issue is I think the Dow excludes a lot of leading companies from its list of 30. So you know, here's some examples of companies that are not in the Dow. There's no Amazon, no Facebook, no Berkshire Hathaway, and no Alphabet, which is the parent company of Google. None of those stocks are in the Dow. And also, you know, if that wasn't enough, also in my mind, the Dow has a very flawed way of weighting its members in the index. And, and how does it do that? How does the Dow weight stocks? Okay. So think about it like this. Most standard U.S. equity benchmark indexes are weighted by company size or market capitalization. And market capitalization is just the share price times the number of shares outstanding for each firm. But the Dow weights its constituents just by share price. Effectively, they're ignoring the number of shares outstanding. And, and I'd note share prices can kind of be arbitrary. A company that frequently splits its shares, all else equal, will have a lower share price than one that doesn't split its shares over its history. 
I mean, I'll just give you an example to give you some color here. You know, Boeing currently has a share price, I think, of around $362. And that company has much more influence over the Dow, has a much higher weighting than Microsoft because Microsoft's share price is only around $138. And I should just say that, that that's as of roughly the time of recording, which is August 29th, 2019. So those stock prices are obviously not going to last forever, but just to put a timestamp on that. Yeah, appreciate that, Drew. But when we step back, what Microsoft in market capitalization terms is actually five times larger than Boeing, okay? Yet Boeing has the much higher weighting in the Dow. And so I think the Dow just gets it totally backwards. And again, Amazon, Facebook, Berkshire Hathaway, Alphabet, they have zero weighting in the Dow. Those four companies actually represent about 10% of the S&P 500. John, you have uh, written a commentary piece about this, and, and in that piece you say that these issues really are, are just quibbles compared to the false understanding of market declines caused by, by looking at points. Can you explain that? Yeah, and I thought your intro to this podcast was spot on. That's the type of reports that we often see from mainstream media and financial media, and it, it really is a pet peeve of mine. I think it's really misleading to discuss drops in the Dow just in terms of points. And so I'll give you an example from earlier this month. So on August 14th of this year, the Dow dropped 800 points. And that was the fourth largest point decline in its history. So, you know, when you hear that kind of news, your stomach may start to turn. You might want to reach for the Rolaids. And, and worse, it might provoke some sort of knee-jerk reaction. Meaning like an investment change, doing something with your portfolio that, that is ill-advised. Exactly, because you're freaked out, you know, listening to this news, like fourth largest point decline in history. Oh, my gosh. But, uh, you know, August 14th was clearly not a good day for the market. But that framing really makes it appear much worse. You know, this wasn't like a Black Monday in 1987 when the market dropped nearly 23%. Or it wasn't even close to the near 8% drop on October 15th in 2008, right in the thick of the financial crisis. In percentage terms, the drop on August 14th was 3.05%. Drew, do you know where that ranks in percentage terms of throughout history? You'll tell me, I'm sure. <laughs> right. So remember, it was the fourth largest point decline in history, right? right? It was the 342nd largest drop in percentage terms in the history of the Dow. Wow. But for the financial and mainstream media, it's much more sensational to refer to the fourth largest point decline in history. And so basically, right, because the Dow is climbing, because the, the size of the index, you know, sort of total number of points in the index is always climbing, then therefore a 600-point move, whether it's up or down, isn't the same percentage change as, as it was 10 years ago or 20 years ago or 100 years ago. Right, Drew, you've got it. That's, that's exactly right. Also... Just taking another step back, you know, as a long-term investor, I think it's really kind of silly to pay attention to daily moves, whether it's in points or percentages. You know, it's really just a lot of noise for the most part. Like, let me ask you a question. How often do you think about daily moves from the previous week or last month or last quarter, last year or last decade? Right. I don't sit back and think, well, what was I doing on August 23rd and, and <laughs> what, what did the market do that day? Right. And this is my profession. And I can tell you, you know, I follow the stock market closely as a equity portfolio manager. But in my career of over two decades, 
you know, I can only really remember a few of the big sell-offs, but outside of that, it's all a blur and it was all noise. And another way I like to think about this, you know, I, I mentioned I'm a long-term investor and let's say I have a 10-year investment horizon. So what does a single day represent of that? It represents less than 0.03% of my total investment horizon. So you really shouldn't put a lot of weight into a single day's move. And also, I just really want to emphasize with investing, and I'm, I'm not talking about speculating or trading, but in investing, you know, this is really a marathon and not a sprint. You know, we really shouldn't be obsessing over daily moves. We really should try to tune out that noise. And I think both of you would, would agree that the investment media can be part of that daily noise, right? For sure. Yep. So, Ryan, did you participate in the uh, the book club at MIM? Yes. Yeah, so so we have all recently read The Wisdom of Crowds by James Surowiecki. He's a columnist at The New Yorker. And in there, the author addresses this issue of news not helping investors make good decisions. And so I'm going to read an excerpt from the book. So again, this is from The Wisdom of Crowds. In the late 1980s, for instance, psychologist Paul Andreessen did a series of experiments with business students at MIT that showed that more news does not always translate into better information. Andreessen divided students into two groups. Each group selected a portfolio of stocks and knew enough about each stock to come up with what seemed like a fair price for it. Then Andreessen allowed one group to see only the changes in the prices of their stocks. They could buy and sell if they wanted, but all they knew was whether the price of a stock had gone up or down. The second group was allowed to see the changes in price, but was also given a constant stream of financial news that supposedly explained what was happening. Surprisingly, the less well-informed group did far better than the group that was given all the news. The reason, Andreessen suggested, was that news reports tend, by their nature, to overplay the importance of any particular piece of information. So when a stock fell, for instance, its fall was typically portrayed as a sign that further trouble lay in wait, while a stock that was on the rise seemed to promise nothing but blue skies ahead. As a result, the students who had access to the news overreacted. They bought and sold far more frequently than the people who were just looking at the price because they took each piece of information as excessively meaningful. The students who could look only at the stock's price had no choice but to concentrate on the fundamentals that they had used to pick their stocks to begin with. So just open this up to both of you. What's the lesson here for investors? Yeah, Drew, I mean, my takeaway here is that the intrinsic value of a business doesn't bounce around like its stock price. Now, really, daily news rarely impacts the long-term fundamentals of a business. But as we all know, it can really drive big changes in share prices. You know, one of Warren Buffett's quotes that I really like a lot is, the market is there to serve you, not to guide you. And so, you know, in my view, the more you focus on the long-term fundamentals and the less you focus on daily noise, I think the better your odds are as an investor. Absolutely. So that's consistent with my thinking on this as well. And part of it, I think, to remember is that the brain is so good at finding patterns that it'll often find patterns that aren't there. And so the markets are very noisy, and that gives ample opportunity for people when looking at this to start to overreact and start to think they see patterns in there when there's really nothing there. And so going back to your first point, when the podcast started with this, example of a massive point change in the Dow, 
people don't have a context for that. So I think there's a natural, well, compared to what? And when you start to talk in points, it looks big, but percentages, it's not that big a deal. And then secondly, for people to contextualize, well, so what should I do with that? And the best advice we have is don't do anything. Don't do anything like don't, don't look at the portfolio, don't move the portfolio. Well, I mean, there's, there's evidence that shows that people are tempted to fiddle and that their efforts to try and time the market and fiddle with their asset allocations almost never benefits them in the long run. I can imagine an advisor or investor listening to this and, and, and they might think, you know, I've watched the Dow my whole life. What's the big deal? You know, why should I stop looking at it now? Well, I think if you have a lot of self-control, then you aren't going to follow you know, bad behaviors from this information. But one other thing to do is to just limit the amount of attention one spends on these sources of noise. And so rather than try and quell the desire to go in and tweak one's portfolio, you can just maybe turn down the TV, these sorts of other sources of noise that are talking about day-to-day returns, which uh, back to the point John made, that's not really about the fundamental value of our investments. So what we pay attention to can drive our behavior is what I think you're you're saying. And and, uh, Ryan, you have recently published research on this topic, right? Yep. So this comes out of some academic research where we're looking at this idea of loss aversion. So people are hypersensitive to losses. A loss looms larger than a gain. And because of this, people can overreact when they start to see losses in their portfolio. And it's really hard to get people to feel differently than their natural inclinations. And so rather than try and teach people not to be loss averse, we tried a couple different experimental manipulations. And one of them had to do with where people, where we could focus people's attention. And we could make people feel less loss averse by changing what they paid attention to. So this is a nice example of a way to nudge people. So we're not going to make people perfectly rational, but by changing what they are attending to, what they're focused on, we can help them make better decisions. You mentioned The Nudge, and this is a book, I think, from 2008 by uh, Richard Thaler and Cass Sunstein. And some examples of nudges that they gave in the book, I think, were like, you know, putting pictures inside urinals to keep the floors under them cleaner. You know, it helps with aim, I guess. And another one, of course, that uh, is closer to home in our industry, of course, is the changing the default option for a defined contribution retirement plan so that the default is for the participant to actually save into the plan and participate in the plan rather than the default being to not participate in the plan. And that raises participation quite a bit. And it, it ultimately does something good for the participants because they're saving and they're preparing for retirement. It's a way to help people sort of manage their own behaviors. So, Ryan, can you think of any ways for investors to manage their own environment, or how can advisors nudge their clients to tune out the daily noise and pay attention to the right things? Right. So, so this example of defaults that you mentioned as a second example, I think is a great way to try and help people make good decisions in the long run. And so essentially by setting up your portfolio so you could have automatic deduction or that there be a default contribution rate, both of these are things that people can do now that helps their future self make better decisions because of that. And so in a sense, they're acting as a coach for their future self by constraining what options they have available or making a choice essentially for that future version of themselves. And in the long run, that can get them where they want to go. We have a brochure called Simple But Not Easy that tries to provide some tools for advisors and their clients to do this. And one of those, I think, is is a letter like you, I think, were referring to where the individual can write their future self a letter saying, you know, if your advisor is giving this to you now, uh, it's probably because we are experiencing some market volatility. And I just want to tell you now, stick to your financial plan. Don't do anything rash, right? It essentially is that type of tool. Are there other tools like this that advisors can use? So there's this dominant view that's emerging in the behavioral sciences that people are of two minds, one that's fast and one that's slow. 
And so typically when you think of the financial planning process, you're dealing there with a very methodical, cool, rational kind of mind. And that's the part of our mind that we use when we're making those kinds of plans, but that may not be the mind that has to make a decision when we see stocks become much more volatile. So this idea of this letter, writing to your future self, is the idea of this cool, calmer mind being able to talk to the mind that's much hotter, much more emotional, and say, hey, this is in our best interest. Let's think about what we're trying to do, what our goals are long-term, and it's a way to balance between those two. And this is thinking fast and slow, essentially. This is the idea that it's hard for us to sort of turn on the thoughtful, deliberative part of our brains, and it's much easier to kind of get swept up with emotion. Our brains want to be lazy, and so it's easier to sort of follow that path rather than thinking carefully through everything. The idea is to use someone's rational brain while it's turned on to sort of communicate it to their less rational, impulsive kind of self. Yeah, exactly. And recognizing that when we make decisions, both of these minds are at play. And part of what nudge this idea is getting at is to start to think about how we can design decision contexts for these two minds. The, highlighting the example of the media, talking about, you know, in big red ink, you know, 800 point drop. This is really trying to sell to the mind that's fast and intuitive and emotional. But that's not necessarily the mind that's going to make better long-term decisions and certainly not from a long-term investment standpoint, the part that we'd really want to try and listen to. So I think that one thing that people can do is start to try and attend to information that helps them make the kinds of long-term beneficial decisions they want to. And that, I think, means turning down news sources and other sorts of things of talking about daily moves in the market. What are some better sources? So we stop watching CNBC. We stop paying attention to every story that's in the newspaper every day. What are some things that can help, you know, sort of feed better decision-making whether you're an advisor or an investor or, or anyone? If I could chime in on that, I think one thing that in my mind that's good is to really disregard your own cost basis in an investment. We've talked about, you know, there's different behaviors where some folks are reluctant to realize losses. Some want to let their winners run. And I guess what I would say is that the market does not care what price you purchased or sold a stock for. You know, when we're looking at stocks and trying to make decisions, we're not looking at what price we paid for the stock. We're looking at how that stock is currently trading relative to our estimate of that company's intrinsic value, which again is based on its long-term earnings and cash generating power. So I think that can help eliminate or diminish some of those biases of reacting to your own personal gains and losses in the portfolio and hopefully have a more long-term kind of forward-looking perspective. And is there anything, John, in terms of what you read or daily habits that can reinforce that focus on fundamentals and whether something you're holding is still a good investment or not? Well, I think there's definitely some sources of information that tends to be more long-term focused. You know, I like to read commentaries and articles from people that are like-minded, that are long-term investors, folks that invest as if they're investing in businesses, not wiggly lines on a stock chart, if you will. So this would be like a Warren Buffett's annual shareholder letter, um, exactly. There's lots of uh, legendary and long-term investors that I like to follow. There's fellow portfolio managers that I like to get insights from that, that have the same type of philosophy and approach. And I'd say that there's certain programs that I basically just won't watch, especially you know if there's someone on TV that's pushing buttons, yelling, buy, 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 sell, 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 giving opinions on 30 different stocks a day. To me, that's not a good source of information. 
And so I try to tune out traders and listen to other long-term investors. Yeah. How about you, Ryan? There's two things. I mean, one I'll answer in the negative, which is um, sources of digital technology are wonderful to stay connected to the world, but they can also give us minute-by-minute updates. And I think that's just a really bad thing to do. So if you have any of these apps on your phone or your watch beeping at you, I would recommend turning those off. It's probably not going to help you make better decisions. I think the larger point I would make is to try and contextualize an investor trying to answer the question of why they're doing this. And I think helping people focus on their long-term goals is a natural way to help them better understand why they're doing this and why the volatility that's in the short term really isn't of concern to them. And the real point is an investor should ask themselves, do I have the portfolio I have now that gives me a good chance of getting to where I want to go in the time frame I'm targeting? And contributions, savings rates, is one of the major drivers of success there. So I think people focusing their attention on what they can do, which is make sure their contributions stay up, and make sure their asset allocation is generally in line with what sort of returns they need and what their risk tolerance is. But I think that focusing people on the you know, the long-term target, this is my financial goal, this is what I'm trying to achieve, can really help people tamp down the urgency that may come from the kind of volatility we see in markets. And I suppose, you know, the investment management industry can be part of the problem here. What can we do industry-wide or here at Morningstar Investment Management to help investors focus on what really matters? John? You know, I think advisors, investors will be really well served, as it was alluded to before, you know, have a financial plan, revisit that financial plan and stick to a long-term plan. Try not to make impulsive decisions Also, I think that uh, sometimes I think it helps to have a contrarian spirit and realize that when there are these days when you have big drawdowns in the market, you know, maybe that represents an opportunity to make some additional investments at attractive prices. And on the flip side, when things are going really well, you know, maybe the stock market's had a great run. Maybe it makes sense to rebalance your portfolio to ensure that you're asset allocation is still consistent with your investment objectives and risk tolerances. And I also think, you know, for clients, I think it's good, you know, to have discussions with your advisor and to revisit those plans. I think that just helps. I I think it creates a lot of discipline, but having the support of a financial advisor, I think can be very helpful. And Ryan? So I, I think one of the things advisors can do is help set the time scope in which they're reporting results. And so I think if a very narrow time scope, here's how your portfolio has changed in the last day or the last month, making that information available or even easy to get to may not serve investors in the long run. I think performance reporting that's aggregated over much longer time periods is certainly very valuable. And, and the second is to try and talk about a portfolio as a holistic thing. And so rather than diving into the constituent parts and people might be tempted to fiddle if they see different parts of the portfolio moving in different directions, but I think it's worth emphasizing to people that portfolios are constructed holistically and by design, they're going to have some components going down when others are going up. It's just a result of diversification and nothing that should alarm them or or compel them to want to get in there and fiddle. But again, if a portfolio's constituent parts are showing broken out and you start to see you know, parts of it are going down, that's red ink. And that could, again, draw people's attention in a place that really doesn't serve their interests. And the long term is really what we're getting people to focus on, right? At any point, any asset class, any portfolio is going to underperform or do something that is not going to make you super happy as a, an investor. But we can't just take those out in isolation and consider them, but really think about them over the entire period of investment. The rewards need to be measured that way rather than, you know, kind of in isolation, right? I think that's a great point. And uh, you know, remember that today's contributors 
positive contributors to a portfolio could become tomorrow's detractors and vice versa. Things that aren't performing well in your portfolio can turn around and provide very positive returns going forward. And I just echo what was said earlier. You know, if you have a portfolio where everything's going in the same direction at the same time, it's not well diversified. You know, a diversified portfolio means that some investments are going to zig when others zag. And in a different environment, different market environment, those can change. And so the idea of diversification is to have a bit of a smoother ride by investing in assets that aren't correlated, that don't move together quite a lot. And so that uh, you have a little smoother ride, it kind of smooths out the peaks and valleys and hopefully allows you to have a smoother return and allows you to kind of stick with your investments and your plan on a go forward basis. Anything else, anyone? So I could make one more point along those lines, which is to give people the right sort of benchmark as to how their performance is. And so one of the default benchmarks that people often gravitate towards is these indexes that are provided, say, how am I doing compared to what the Dow did today or what the NASDAQ did? And that's really a poor benchmark for a lot of people because that is all equities and people are not trying to beat the market. I mean, most people, when they're trying to invest, are trying to reach their financial goals. And I think those are very different things. And a good financial advisor should be able to explain that difference and make it really clear to the investor as to why they're doing these things. And so if an investor is coming back and disappointed repeatedly for not beating the market, that could be because they're misunderstanding what their portfolio is designed to do. Drew, we've talked about, you know, there's some antiquated baseball performance measures that a casual fan like myself would be interested in, like batting average. But if you looked at the, you know, analytic folks and the the people that manage baseball teams, they're looking at other measures that are much more sophisticated than just batting average, right? So they're... OPS is is the big one, right? Yeah. Base plus slugging. So in, in my mind, the Dow Jones is like, the investing equivalent of batting average, something that maybe laymen are paying attention to, the casual fan. Investment professionals aren't looking at the Dow. It's rarely, rarely used as a benchmark, yet that's what is reported in not only mainstream media, but often the financial media, a lot of focus on the Dow. So to me, that's just interesting. So dump the Dow, a market cap-weighted benchmark is better, but even better than that is to not concentrate on past performance, but to stay focused on the financial plan that you and your financial advisor have worked together on and to stay focused on progress rather than performance. Gents, thanks for being here today. Thanks, Drew. Of course, my pleasure. And listener, thank you for joining us. If you enjoy listening to Simple But Not Easy, would you consider subscribing today? Maybe rate us in your favorite podcast app. And if you have any comments about the show, we'd love to hear from you. Email us at simple at morningstar.com. That's S-I-M-P-L-E at morningstar.com. I'm Drew Carter. Come back next week for a new episode of Simple But Not Easy. Bye for now. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be considered investment advice. Opinions expressed are as of the date of publication. Such opinions are subject to change. No Morningstar entity, including Morningstar Investment Management and Morningstar Research Services, shall be responsible for any trading decisions, damages, or other losses resulting from or related to the content presented. Morningstar makes no representation as of the completeness or accuracy of the information presented. Past performance is not a guarantee of future results. 
All investments are subject to investment risk, including possible loss of principal. Individuals should seriously consider if an investment is suitable for them by referencing their own financial position, investment objectives, and risk profile before making any investment decision.